On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we talk with illustrator and comic book artist Jim Calafiori about his work and his adventures in crowdfunded projects. Plus, Lulu French returns to review Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Now, straight from the megalopolis city limits, this is 1.21 Gigawatts. Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 49 for February 2020. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that are cool and noteworthy and deserve to be celebrated. Do both yourself and myself a favor and subscribe right now at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Player FM, or SoundCloud.com to guarantee that you never miss an episode. This all started when the Joker and I broke up. It was completely mutual. And soon enough, I was back on my feet, ready to embrace the fierce goddess within. Fresh from two Oscar wins for the dark DC Comics-inspired film Joker, one award for Best Original Score and one for Lead Actor Joaquin Phoenix, Warner Brothers' newest entry into superhero films is Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Directed by Kathy Yan, the movie stars and is produced by Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, returning to her breakout role from 2016's Suicide Squad. As Birds of Prey begins, we catch up with Harley Quinn, who, like the American moviegoing public, has dumped the Jared Leto version of the Joker and now finds herself a target of seemingly everyone. And so, to save her hide from being flayed by gangster bad guy Roman Sionis, aka Black Mask, aka actor Ewan McGregor, she finds herself wrapped up in a mad dash to retrieve a very unique diamond. Of course, so is every other lowlife in Gotham City, as well as evolving heroes Black Canary, played by Journey Smollett-Bell, Huntress, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and police detective Renee Montoya, played by Rosie Perez. Who will secure the prize? Will anyone actually want to see anything other than Harley wielding glitter bullets and F-bombs with the same frequency? And have audiences been showing up to take it all in? All these questions and more are about to be tackled with the help of my guest, my co-conspirator in moviegoing and life in general. It's the triumphant return of my wife, Lulu French of Rocket Improv fame. Without further ado, it's time to lace up those roller skates, cover yourself in glitter, and dive into our super, super spoilery discussion of Birds of Prey, Puddin'. Here's the fun thing. Lulu French and I, when we walked out of the movie theater, we haven't even said whether or not we even liked it to each other yet. That's how fresh this is. We've had some, said nothing. We've been saving it. For this. <laughs> so, so on the count of three, Lulu, um, you're going to say if you if you, you're going to say liked it, didn't like it, and then that's how we're going to start. Okay. All right, ready? Yeah. All right, one. We'll do it at the same time. Okay. One, two, three. It was okay. Oh, that was not one of the <laughs> options. But you didn't give me like a mid mid ground option. All right, on a scale of one to fourteen, 
No, what? I don't want to do that. Uh, All right, so it was okay. It was okay, says yeah. Lulu French, about the movie formerly known as Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Now known, arguably the movie we saw was called Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey. At least that's what it would say on the marquee. Yeah, we saw that movie. <laughs> we'll get into that a little bit more. All right, so it was okay. So, Lulu, let's yeah. talk about this. Going into this movie, Into Birds of Prey, you had not seen Suicide Squad, and I'm guessing that your experience with the character of Harley Quinn is limited largely to seeing people cosplay as her, and that's about it. That's absolutely correct. Yes, okay. I know what she looks like. <laughs> so, so what did you what did you think her deal was going into this? You've seen you've seen some marketing and you've oh, seen a yeah, lot of people. Yeah, sure, because up. of Suicide Squad trailers, sure. right? You get a real sense of the character. You know, she's nuts. She's mad. She's sexy as hell. So you know, it's Margot <laughs> Robbie. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the noise that that everyone makes. All men and women say that about Margot Robbie. Like, oh, she was so hot. <laughs> so, so does this work as an intro to Harley? If you don't know anything about the character, um, did you feel lost by this? The movie really goes out of its way in a little animated opening credit sequence to try to say. Here's Harley Quinn 101. I was not lost at all. I thought they did a great job of, you know, catching up viewers like myself who maybe don't know anything about the history of the character or the story. And I would agree with that. Uh, as someone who, uh, I will admit, I know DC Comics. I don't super well know DC Comics. I mean, so so right now we're recording in the nerd room, the fabled nerd room of 1.21 gigawatts. So right behind me. I Nobody's like idealizing this really cool, you know, a room with models. It's lit models with neon, and there's so many models. Cases, and that, that's true. Let's, you know, mint and card, you know, on the wall, and right, all my vintage no. Kenner I mean, action it figures. Is a gross partially Easy finished now. basement room. Just because there's literal carpet tacking sticking out of the... There's no carpet, and this yet there are rusty nails. This is a cockroach family's dream come true, is what it is. With all these um, cardboard boxes full of Star Wars toys from the 80s and 90s, and... Well, that's all the time all we have. Thanks, Lulu. All these long boxes, <laughs> lots of long boxes... What I was going to say, I'm going to use that segue now that you've disparaged my favorite place in this house, <laughs> is that in those long boxes behind me of comics, there there are, like, I've got a bunch of Huntress comics, and I've got comics with oh. um, Black Canary, oh. very few with Harley Quinn, lots of Joker, Uh and uh, but I but I wouldn't say that I'm a super expert necessarily on those characters. So you know it, these characters. You and I think that people when people go in to see movies with characters that they know, there's a little bit more of a fondness for them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Is, sure. Of, and, for sure. You know, I I've said on the show before, I'm not a comic book reader, so I often you know, ask your opinion um, about, uh, you know, the uh, history of comics and yeah. the stories and, and you know, if your enjoyment of the film was maybe amplified by your, you know, your history with the comics and whatnot. So, you know, and I'm not um, a big DC movie lover anyway, and it's not so much that, 
you know, I like the MCU movies so much more. I think they're better quality. But also, there's a darkness to the world of Gotham that just, you know, just me as a person, I don't really seek that out because there's enough freaking darkness in my life that I want <laughs> stuff that's more fun and light and fluffy. Um, so I did get that from the movie. I got a lot of fun and light and fluffy. I, I love great fight choreography. Mm. And it's ridiculousness and over-the-topness appeals to me. I love it, you know? Just, like, bring it on. Um, but there's also a darkness to it, which, to me, feels a little gratuitous and unnecessary, but... You know, I think that's subjective. I think someone else would see that and be like, oh, that was cool, or I really like the darkness. But me, not so much. So so even in Birds of Prey, you're talking about, you felt that there was a darkness in that. Oh, yeah. That felt, that felt gratuitous. Yeah, in any movie where there is Gotham, which is some weird, strange, dark... Um, you know, mirror to New York City, right? It's New York City, but it's not. It's a little darker. It's a little more corrupt. It's fantastical. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's like this kind of like grittiness and darkness. It just kind of brings me down. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that I could take you to that tonight. Honey. There was a lot of color, right? <laughs> a lot of uh, you know p- pro-feminist uh, you know stuff going on, um, and that that appealed to me. Yes, this is a, a movie that like uh, takes on the Bechdel test head on and never looks back, and uh, and and all the guys in it are kind of just either a little gross or violent jerks, That's or, or maybe only, like cliche mob leaders. The character of Doc, right, who's like somewhat redeemable, but even the in the end he sells her out. Yes. So, oh, gosh, I guess you're right. Do are there any redeemable, redeemable men? men in the movie? No, there are not. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this, but they went out onto Founders Pier. Yes. And were you thinking, like me, look at all these dudes, right? Because it's a thing Ooh. that, you know, there are dude walls and all the statues are dudes. It's like all these freaking white dudes, right? So as soon as I saw Founders Pier, I was like, man, yes, look at all these men and all the great things they have done, right? And that's where she ultimately takes out the bad guy. Well, that's interesting. So we should read into that because Founders Pier, yes, to your point, even though we don't clearly see the statues, but they certainly... Right, so this so this is a pier. It's in the it's in the haze, the the dusk of Gotham, and um, you know the mist is rolling, and you can't see them clearly. So what we're just seeing outlines of what look like important men of industry from yeah. like the 1930s, and they're all oh, from steel many barons or many I'm different sure. decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I was distracted by because the first one I thought looked like the penguin. I thought like, oh, oh yeah, is this I a noticed thing? that too. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm sure that wasn't a coincidence. Um, so in my mind, like, oh, this is going to be a weird uh, DC tie-in, <laughs> and that's not really where they were going at all. But the pier itself is rotten. It's abandoned. It is decay, right? The very mm-hmm. representation of decay. Uh, and if you make a wrong step, you're going to go plummeting into the water below. Right, yeah. So that's probably, hopefully, not a mistake. Ooh, yeah, that's kind of cool when yeah. you think about it. Like, this is from the past. Yeah. And now it is, it's rotten from the inside out. Whoa. 
Whoa, we got deep. You're welcome, uh, birds of prey. Um, all right, you mentioned this, the fight choreography really quickly. You, you like a good fight choreography, and this movie Love it. was full of that. Loved it. I And I think what is cool and, and unique about this movie then, in a way, is there are probably not a lot of fight sequences where we're going to see action on roller skates. <laughs> So, that was awesome. So, that was great. I love it when movies really make these unique and original choices with action scenes, things that we maybe haven't seen before. Absolutely. Would this ever really happen? No, but it is a comic book movie, and what a great idea to have the, someone on roller skates alongside a car. And you really can kick the shit out of someone if you're wearing roller skates. <laughs> yeah. I'm absolutely bought into that. She knows from experience, people. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's interesting. Again, near the end. Well, can I just interrupt you for a yeah. second here, Brad? Can I also mention that it was really satisfying to see women kicking the shit out of men? Yes, you can. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love men. I love you. But it was just so goddamn satisfying to see all these assholes and douchebags just getting what they deserved. I would just like to send a message to anyone listening to this right now that if you don't hear from me by the time I post this episode, Lulu owns a pair of roller skates. They're in our closet upstairs in our bedroom, and I might be in mortal danger. Anyway, now we back to the movie. I heard everything you just said. Oh, jeez, I was staring right at you when at you said all. it. That, oh that was, man, yeah. You know, there's a there's a fight sequence near the end where they're in like a a fun house uh, at an abandoned um, roller, uh, an abandoned um, uh, amusement park. Yes. Um, and it's so ridiculous and yes. crazy, and of course everything in and inventive and inventive. Mm-hmm. For a hot second, it seemed like we were almost diving into like the late Joel Schumacher Batman movies. <laughs> You're like, right when oh, bouncing no. around. We're, yeah, we're, yeah. There's there are trampolines involved. It's an homage. An homage. I thought like, oh no, oh careful, 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 careful. Don't go over the line necessarily to total wackadoo. <laughs> and I think maybe what saves it is the fact that at least one character could pause and be like, how did she have time to put on roller skates? Right, right. Like it when was sort of called meta. out. Yeah. 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 When it could get meta. So, and it shot well. Yeah, it's shot very well. Yeah. So, so all right. So let's let's talk about the meta-ness. Um, Harley is breaking the fourth wall all over the place. Yeah, like he ba- flea bag. Yep. She is, she is our narrator. Uh, and uh, the first half of the movie really plays with narrative sequencing. Like there's a lot of, hold on, hold on, I'm telling it all wrong. Mm-hmm. And then like literal rewinding the movie and yeah. going back and yeah. diving back in. Um, was that was that ever jarring? Was that confu- I mean, it wasn't confusing or jarring necessarily, but was we don't see that you? often. Um, no, it wasn't. Although no. I thought we're halfway through the movie and we're still doing this device, and I wondered if they were going to continue doing it. Did they continue doing it? I don't uh, no, know. not really. Mm-hmm. I I think we we sort of dove into it at that I think point. We had the flashbacks we needed to you know fill in the the story. I I, yeah. I thought it was uh, yeah fine. Didn't throw me off. I liked okay. it. Cool. All yeah. right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to strike that one from the record. Yeah, it's funny. I'm saying all these positive stuff, but still I would say it was fine. <laughs> it was fine. I think it was slow at times. I think it was dark at times. Just like gratuitously dark. But mm-hmm. then again, maybe that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. And then we have some great action scenes and the the performances were great. Yeah, the performances were great. I yeah, was super, were super, super excited to see Rosie Perez uh, in a movie in a really very Rosie Perez-y kind of role. Moki, Moki. <laughs> yeah, we love her. It's been so, I feel like it's been a long time. Maybe I'm just not seeing the right movies. Gen Xers, everyone everyone else be like, what? That's right. Please uh, reply if you're seeing this on Facebook or somewhere on social media. I want you to write in the comments, what is Mookie from? Yeah. Yeah. We'll find out how old you are. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or go hit IMDb and look at Rosie Perez. You're still not going to know. You're going to know when you see it, if you don't know. Um, So Rosie Perez, uh, awesome. She's great. Um, A lot of people have been commenting about Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who plays Huntress in this movie, um, as being sort of like this hidden gem in the cast. Thoughts on the character? Um, Well, they were... You know, she was playing a very straight and uncool, not as cool as the others and trying to pull it off. Maybe that's why she stands out in a way, because the movie is so over the top and insane and and has full of so many characters that are like, sure, whatever, (laughs) Um, that there's that she's the one who's the most stereotypical. I am in an action superhero movie. Um, So the fact that she is like uh, sort of straightforward and and stoic compared to everyone else maybe is what makes her stand out because like Mm. she's going to be the square. I really love those track suits they put her in (laughs) when she was in Italy. I was dying. They were so good when she was practicing outside and she has this like Euro trash track suit number on. It was just fantastic. Great detail. It it was a good detail. Um, We were talking... Detail? Detail? Detail. We were talking before about uh, where we have seen Mary Elizabeth Winstead before and what we like her from. And I think the movie that you were looking for was Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. (gasps) Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. I thought she looked familiar. Yeah. Where she was great. She, I mean, there's a million credits, of course, but that's that's a big one in our household, at Mm -hmm. least. Um, Let's talk about Black Canary. Uh, who is played by Journey Smollett-Bell. Um, I'm looking at her IMDb page. When I was looking at her credits, I can tell you that she was on uh, The Cosby Show as a character named Journey as herself, basically. Oh, okay. I'm sure she was real little. Yeah. All right, so um, I like the character. So Black Canary is a, is a straight-up superhero in the comics. So in this she's just a real tough fighter she's a driver and then suddenly she's a mutant <laughs> and then suddenly <laughs> she has crazy sonic yelling powers near the end yeah. of the movie i was like oh yeah sure sure why not why not it's a comic book movie yeah there's something going on there right. i wasn't thrown off by it i wasn't thrown off by it but as a movie like especially because i was with i i can tell you not three minutes before she exhibits powers for the one and only time that she does so in the movie other than hitting a real high note which would make it a setup for another movie right i mean if it only happens once at the end then it's like it's a reveal isn't it you don't think that it was just her singing a high note and blasting people away. I mean, it was a superpower. Oh yeah, it's it's straight up a superpower. There, there's no question. I mean, they gave it 
you know, like sonic wave lines um, to to defeat the enemies. What what sort of bugged me as a moviegoer is yes, I know that the character is, and as a and as a comic book fan, thinking like, really, are we not going to have her any have any powers? She's not going to have any. Oh, there they are at one hour and thirty seven minutes into the movie for one time, like. It seems weird that we're not even going to set this up before. That seems a little I see where you're coming deus from. ex machina Absolutely. to me. Absolutely. I guess that in my mind, I just see it as a, a, a movie trope where you're setting a character up for more story yeah. in another movie. Yeah. This is a hard right turn, but I am now, <laughs> since we, whoa, oh, that happened in the movie. I put in some sound effects because we don't like have a, you know, or anything. <laughs> Oh, you do that so much better than I, so I just kind of interjected with something. No. With my it, own voice. It's good. It's like we were doing, it's like, and now a clip from Birds of Prey. <laughs> smash, smash. <laughs> oh, boys. Beep, 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 beep. That's a head being Will hit against a steering wheel. Will you let me do the, the female voices? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was me. That was me doing you and McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I can see that. I can see that. All right, you, and McGregor in this movie, uh, delightful or a scenery chewer of the highest order? Both. In a in the in a really good way, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's like what the hell are you doing? He's like doing his damnedest with what he was given is what he <laughs> is doing. So. He is doing the best. He like he went home. He read all his Stanislavski. <laughs> he like wrote out a whole history for this character. You know that he wrote a book on this character's history so that he could play him as like a deep and layered character to the goddamn best of his ability. <laughs> who is obsessed with looks, who bought his clothes off of a Miami Vice clearance rack. Yeah, that uh, character's wackadoo. I mean, ugh, again, it's very comic booky, and I think two-dimensional, and Ewan McGregor is trying to bring an extra dimension or two to the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's not too judgy of me to say about the character, but I... Ugh. No, it, it's not. I don't think it's too judgy about it. And I and I agree with you. Like, I, I don't mind what he did ultimately. I thought it was... I, I'm with you. He was doing what he could because, in a way, after all of our talk about Gotham, you don't have to squint too hard to be like, um, what's a character that's kind of like Joker but isn't Joker? <laughs> How can we do this and just not have it straight up be creepy? And I don't know if it's possible. Yeah, yeah. Because with all villains, you want to see the motivation yeah. for what they're doing. And, and I'm not sure what his really It was, was a little tough yeah. to kind of make the connection, especially when it got really dark in the club and he made that woman get up on the table and yeah. dance. Like, you know, he's saying and doing this because that's what the script said. Yeah. Just, just seemed really weird. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. The, the the evil quirks, and that's putting it really much kinder than he deserves. But his evil quirks, whether it's like you get up on that table and dance in front of everyone, yeah. and it's going to get weirder. And get up and dance, take off your dress. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, let's do something where the audience is going to really hate this character, so that when he does finally die, we're all like, yeah. Yeah, but but even like that act doesn't necessarily line up with his more violent tendencies to like I'm going to take your face off yeah. or something like. Well, how do these and things all? They didn't do line a up? whole lot with that either. I no. mean, not that I really wanted them to. Yeah, I hated that bit so much. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I was waiting for, now we're going to go into a secret lair and it's full of jars of oh, people's faces God. or something. Yeah, see, th- those are the moments where I just think it went a little too far into the darkness. All right, so speaking of a little too far into the darkness, uh, as we record this, this is the second weekend in r- of release for uh, for Birds of Prey, and I was joking about the different title. Because, of course, this movie opened, it did not meet anyone's predictions uh, or projections for box office. It came in real under, uh, and Warner Brothers panicked a bit and thinking like, oh no, how do we save this? Because they're all in on this character. There's another Suicide Squad movie that's in development right now, directed by James Gunn. Whoa. Um, That Harley Quinn will be back in that as well. So like, she's sort of their darling character. I like the character. Yeah. And Margot Robbie is amazing. She makes the character so much better than it maybe is. But (laughs) the combination of her with the character, who is just so much fun. She's crazy. Oh, I loved it when she went into the um, police station and was like shooting up the station with with color and confetti. Yeah. I totally dug that. Look at that crazy, mad womanly <laughs> stuff. It's <laughs> just so powerful and fun. And I agree. And, and there were even bits in the trailer that worked better in the movie partly because you're poking me in the side and like, oh, she's hiding behind a giant pile of cocaine that's getting shot up right now. Yeah. And that's where she's going to get her superpower from. <laughs> and like, I feel great and invincible now. I remember that in the trailer. For, for whatever reason, in my mind, it didn't read as oh, cocaine. Oh, my sweet boy. Uh, you're so innocent. I'm so, so innocent. You haven't ever had a brick of cocaine in your backpack before, Brad? Did we not just talk about the fact that I spend all my time in a room that is a cockroach heaven, but full of action figures and comic books? Right. Right. All right. So the movie came in under projections when it opened. So everyone panicked. They changed the name of this movie. But to your point about it being unnecessarily dark sometimes, this is a movie that is rated R, which is relatively uncommon for super for mainstream superhero movies right now. Despite the fact that DC just had a gigantic hit with an R-rated Joker movie. But ah. but that movie's dark and leans into it real hard. Oh, right, right, right. The Joaquin Phoenix. The Joaquin yeah, Phoenix. Yeah. Congratulations, Joaquin. You won an Oscar. Congratulations, composer of Joker. You won an Oscar. They're Good. both listening to you, and I'm sure <laughs> very grateful. My close personal are. friend, Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so yeah. the PG-13-ness versus the R-ratedness of this movie. Um... It is violent, yes, but not super, super Correct. violent. Right. I was thinking that, I was noticing that it could have been so much more gory than it was for being yeah. an R-rated movie. Yeah. So, does the R-ratedness, well, for sure, comes from the fact that um, uh, as often as a glitter bullet is shot, mm-hmm. so is an F-bomb dropped mm-hmm. uh, all over the place. Is, could, should they have just made this a PG-13 movie? Yes. God, Brad. I mean, I I wasn't aware of all this until you started talking about it. But mm-hmm. now that I'm thinking about it, that was pretty dumb of them. I mean, it's real. It would not have been hard it's to make this. I mean, a PG-13 movie anyway. Mm-hmm. Why can't they just, you know, make the small adjustments that they needed to make to just keep it PG-13? Because... 
yeah, absolutely. They're, they're missing out on a, a huge demographic that would really dig this film. Yeah, I think that Warner Brothers would assume that like, oh, this is going to be our Deadpool. Yes, right. We've talked about the Deadpool factor yes. and how uh, Deadpool did really well. And so now studios are like, oh, we need to make a Deadpool. That's what's going to bring people out. And they never freaking realize that it's not a formula mm-hmm. that brings people to movies to really enjoy the movies, but it, it's in the movie itself. Yeah. It's not the formula of it. So A lot of people have been talking about the fact how like my kids love love Harley. My daughter loves oh, Harley Quinn. Yeah. I would take her to see it, but I'm not going to take her to see this. Well, that's, yeah, that's pretty dumb. Yeah, this seems like a misstep on Warner Brothers' uh, part. Uh, Suicide Squad was rated PG-13. I mean, haven't so many of those DC movies been missteps? Well, that's a whole extra segment right there. Uh, many of them, yes, many of them have been missteps. I suppose that swearing that much makes it more realistic as a mob movie? I don't know. You can't swear in a PG-13 movie? Um, Not to the extent they did mm. in this. I mean, I think that you're allowed one or two max F-bombs. Yeah, and I you can't feel get that like gratuitous. there was a lot of swearing in that movie. Was you there? didn't think there was a lot of swearing in Birds of Prey? I guess I'm immune to it or something. What's happening <laughs> You're so hardened. <laughs> Orange is the new black will do that to you. <laughs> I guess so. So much Netflix has burned out your synapses. I know. For... I mean, you watch anything on streaming and get more, more profanity than you did in Birds of Prey. Right. She puts hot sauce on everything just to feel. Yeah. I don't know what that was. That's a trailer for a whole different movie. Um well, thank you for going to the movies with me, Lulu. That I know. You know, I normally wouldn't seek that out, but then you said I could be on your podcast, so <laughs> I jumped at the chance. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> thank you for not Don't laughing immediately that. after you said that. It's Lulu. Fr- All right, so my last question to you as Yay. we finish, what was better than ultimately Birds of Prey or that 60-second Stranger Things season four trailer <laughs> with Hopper? <laughs> my god brad is only bringing this up because i screamed into a pillow for a full minute after he showed me that with hopper the big hopper reveal at the end and then i just just was ecstatic he didn't even tell me i was seeing a stranger things anything he was just like let's watch this I'm like, okay, okay, Russia, bad guys, oh, the snow. Working on the railroad. Yeah, railroad. Like, okay, I don't know what you're showing me, Brad. And then, <laughs> David Harbour, yes. We are now peaking at the levels <laughs> on this. So I think you answered my question. Thanks very much. All right, until next time, see you later, everyone. See you later, Puddin'. Bye-bye. Some quick explanation about artist Jim Calafiore's amazing booth at comic book conventions. Since you'll hear it referenced at the beginning of this interview, let me set the scene. The back wall of his table at the Garden State Comic Fest was made up of a grid of 12 by 12 inch prints, 10 feet high, each displaying a different comic book character against a Jackson Pollock style paint splattered background using only that character's signature colors. So the Joker is green, purple, and white. Captain America uses only red, white, and blue. You get the idea. The graphic presentation is representative of an artist who is fully comfortable with regular commercial work, and he kills it, such as with his runs on Aquaman at DC and on Exiles at Marvel. 
But he also has that spirit to work on the projects he wants to work on in the way he wants to work on them. That impulse has given us leaving Megalopolis and soon Ned Lord of the Pit. I spent some time with Jim at the 2018 Garden State Comic Fest in Morristown, New Jersey, so you'll hear some convention noise during our conversation, but that just makes it feel so real you'll want to commission a sketch from Jim while we're talking. Hey there, I'm Brad Barton of the 1.21 Gigawatts podcast at the Garden State Comic Fest and uh, clearly bathed in the fantastic artwork of Jim Calafiore. Hello, Jim. How are you? I'm fine. When I am in your booth, uh, I feel as if I'm in, uh, in, in a, a home among these prints, maybe even <laughs> your home among these prints, because I, I know that, uh, that this amazing art behind you originated as an art piece for your living room. Is that right? A lot of the pieces that, that we're looking at behind you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is something that I've been doing that's just uh, <clears throat> separate from the comic book art. Yeah. Um, I actually don't have any of the paintings here. These come from actual mm -hmm. canvas paintings. Yeah. And I just had a blank wall in my... Uh, my living room that I want to do an installation on. Mm -hmm. So it's 16 12 by 12 canvases that are in a grid, 4 by 4 <clears throat> And I started, I, I uh, scanned them in and made these prints, and I started uh, seeing if anybody was interested in the prints, and they sold, and I actually a lot of people have ordered commissions. That's come, I have so many different images. I have over 130 different oh, images wow. now. Yeah. And it's from people just commissioning characters. There's some I don't have prints of, like, nobody buys Blue Devil. <laughs> Except the person who wanted the painting. Right. And it was cool, yeah. but nobody ever bought a print of Blue Devil. <laughs> that is interesting. Over, over the years, when you're doing commissions for shows, um, are you ever surprised by the obscurities that pop up and say, I want Blue Devil or I want someone even, even more off the grid and I want them doing this and I want them doing this with this character? Um, are the, have, has anyone been able to surprise you with that? Um, not really. Okay. I mean, maybe early on. Um, the biggest thing when that happens is I say, do you have reference? It usually helps if they have reference. Sure. I want to talk about uh, influences that brought you into um, the business, and I assume when you were reading in your, in your younger years growing up. Um, and this is sort of a leading question because I know that you're a fan of Mobius. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I was into, well, my first book I ever bought was The Hulk. 127. <laughs> that was Herb Trimpey. So I grew up on Herb Trimpey. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Herb Trimpey is not, by no means the end-all, be-all of artists. But I grew up on Herb Trimpey, so he's got a little place in my heart. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And I was reading a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of artists that I really love. And I, I influence me. I don't think you see him in my artwork. But, you know, I was a big fan of Bernie Wright's and, mm -hmm. you know, and Barry Windsor Smith, his, his stuff. And But the big thing for me was when I discovered Metal, uh, metal Heavy Metal Magazine. Yeah. And uh, all the European artists um, also discovered Corbin's Den there, Richard Corbin's Den there. But the, a lot of the all the European artists, and especially Mobius, and Mobius is my god, yeah. or was my god. Well, he's dead now, so he's probably a god. Oh, so yeah, he's right. my god. He's, he's finally <laughs> achieved Nirvana. Yes. Yeah, I, I have vivid memories of uh, when Marvel Epic. Uh, was reprinting a ton of his stuff in probably the mid late 80s oh, yeah. or something and having my mind blown and oh, as a okay. you know a late teenager or something like holy moly i can't even yeah. conceive of what this is it's just a totally different space yeah, yeah. i mean mine was I, I really found it's in junior high so it's 1975 ish six ish okay. and there was just a copy of heavy metal magazine on the bus <laughs> that somebody had lost. So it was sure. beat up and it was on the school bus going home. And I started flipping through it and I'm like, 
it blew me away. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know that a lot of your projects, you have uh, gone the Kickstarter route, and in fact, we were just talking about a new one um, that you're thinking about for Kickstarter. And the first time you were working with Kickstarter or working through Kickstarter, it was a relatively new entity. Is that right? Um, to a certain degree. Um, it was actually new to me. Okay. For sure. Um, Gail Simone and I had been working on Secret Six. Um, we were getting a lot of really great press on that. People were loving it. And uh, <clears throat> they canceled it when they canceled everything for the new 52. It's actually um, inker Rodney Ramos and writer Brandon Montclair were just talking to me at uh, one of the shows in New York. We were talking about something to do. They said, why don't you do Kickstarter? I'm like, what's Kickstarter? Mm -hmm. So I talked to Gail and I asked her if she would want to do a book through Kickstarter. And uh, she sent me over three or four paragraph synopses of ideas. And uh, I really like leaving Megalopolis. So I suggested we do that. Um, and we put it up and uh, had a real nice success with the funding. It took a little while to get the book out, but we got the book out. Um, but it was at that time, I, I was surprised how many people didn't know about Kickstarter when I was promoting it at shows and how many people complained later that they missed it because they really didn't know about Kickstarter. Um, so, I mean, I, th I think there's a certain ubiquitousness sure. to... Ubiquity? Ubiquitousness. Ubiquity <laughs> to Kickstarter in our heads, but I th there's still a lot of fans who really don't know it. Sure. Um, which is sad because it's a, it's a great outlet instead of having to deal with the publishers. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think probably allows for, well, please, if we walked up and down the aisles here in Artist Alley that, um, you know, we couldn't, couldn't swing a proposal without uh, talking to someone who has had some degree of luck, I think, with Kickstarter just because, yeah, you, you can put out the project that's been burning a hole in your head for a long time with the major, major publishers. Like, nah, I don't really want to do that. Yeah, so of course the, the, uh, the Megalopolis uh, books came from that largely, and you're working on something new that you're also hoping to do through Kickstarter, yes? Yes, I'm uh, working on getting, unlike leaving Megalopolis where we had nothing done, <laughs> Except some promo pieces, and <clears throat> the you know, we were we weren't going to do it if it didn't go. Um, the first one. Uh, right now, I'm trying to work on getting about uh, about three fifths of it done. It's uh, a, a horror comedy mm -hmm. called uh, Ted, Lord of the Pit. All right. And uh, it's it'll be about oh, it's a uh, hundred and. 40-some page graphic okay. novel. I think it's about 140-some pages. I'm trying to get about three-fifths three of that done. I've got one-fifth done now. Um, now it's con convention season, so I'm sure. having sure. trouble you know, stop, start, getting stop, back start. to yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, San Diego's coming up. Yeah, boy. And uh, uh, hopefully when I get that ready to get to Kickstarter, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll post it on my Facebook and my website and everything. Sure, sure. Well, uh, we will all be uh, eagerly paying attention for the status updates um, and um, checking said social medias <laughs> to make sure that we can be in on that. Um, uh, that's the best place to look would be Facebooks and Instagrams and whatnot of the world? Yeah, generally. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be, as usual, hitting up every friend sure. to repost and tweet <laughs> and get it out there as much as possible. I, I probably will do some podcasts because I know some guys doing podcasts and right. get it out there any way I can. But it's also just check Kickstarter. 
Absolutely. All right, you heard it here first. It's coming up. Uh, if you've read the Megalopolis books, then you know uh, it's you're, you're going to be in good shape following this uh, project. So don't go anywhere. Pay attention and check it out. Thank you so much, Jim. Good luck with the project. Thank you. Following the success of the crowdfunded Leaving Megalopolis project created with writer Gail Simone, Jim has struck horror comedy gold with Ned, Lord of the Pit, a 160-page hardcover graphic novel written and drawn by Jim. The fundraising portion is over, but you can still order the book as it's being finished up by visiting www.nedlordofthepit, that's all one word, .com. And to catch the latest and greatest from Jim, visit jimcalafiori.com. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Many thanks to my guests Jim Calafiori and Lulu French. Special thanks also to Dave O'Hare and Sal Zerzolo and Eric Balomo at the Garden State Comic Fest. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your podcast feed to nerd out. It means more to me than you know. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? And what deserves to inform Lord Vader of the unfortunate news of the Millennium Falcon's escape in person? You can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's social media channels. They are the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds at the 1.21 Gigawatts website, which has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Check out 121Gigawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. Hey, did you know that every episode of this podcast is available for free at Apple Podcasts? It's so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. And while you're visiting Apple Podcasts, you can help us out. Whether you're a subscriber or not, please rate and review the show, especially if you have something nice to say, because that will help more like-minded listeners find the show. You can also find us on Stitcher at SoundCloud.com or on Player FM. It's highly probable that you're listening to my voice right now thanks to one of those platforms. So browse the other episodes listed there and check out another one. I'll even make a recommendation. If you enjoyed this episode's interview with Jim Calafiori, I encourage you to check out episode number 18 when I spoke with artist Jan Dersima. She's also a stunningly talented comic book artist who has put in the work hours to make her killer art look effortless. I am a big fan. That's episode number 18 of 1.21 Gigawatts. Give it a listen as soon as you finish this one. Huge gratitude to my co-producer, composer, sound designer, and a man who watches the Super Tuesday face-offs and wonders why there aren't more capes and heat vision involved, David Sisko. You are and remain the best, Cisco. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all of those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome rocking out with the 1.21 Geekawatts theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Oh,
1.21 gigawatts What every geek wants is what we got From Doctor Who to Aqualad You might meet Luke and Leia's dad Pop culture that is super rad Hosted by some guy named Brad It'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks 1.21 freaking gigawatts They're all here for me, aren't they? No. They're not? No, they're not. Do you know what that means? That means he's not just after the kid anymore. He's after all of us. Sure as hell after me. I just robbed him. You just betrayed him, you just killed his BFF, and you're dumb enough to be building a case against him. So, unless we all want to die very unpleasant deaths and let Roma go finger fishing in the kids' intestinal tract, we're gonna have to work together. <sighs> okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 